So, is God a killer? That's the question we're looking at this morning. And my heritage comes from a personal experience plus an intense Bible study fostered by Graham Maxwell's picture of God. Uh, I actually studied under Graham Maxwell uh, for my master's degree at Dublin University many years ago. People at the seminary still think they taught me. <laughs> but I never went to the seminary. Um, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> and my view is that God is just like Jesus, never forceful, angry, revengeful, but ever loving, kind, and forgiving. Those of you who have heard Grand Maxwell teach uh, know that this is almost lines directly from him. Most inheritors of the view, including Graham, have believed that while God will not kill the wicked at the end, he did kill many people in the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and other similar events. I used to discuss this with him, personally, and uh, he was very, very strongly uh, persuaded that God actually did those things. And so for many years, I shared this view. Not because he believed that I just, it, it didn't make sense to go the other way. I'm still very tied to the text and what it literally said. Between 2008 and 2011, I drafted a book on the Old Testament God and attempted, as I've often done in my classes, to soften metaphorically the violence as a grand, using Graham Maxwell's term, emergency measures of the Old Testament. I use metaphors like putting people to sleep, necessary surgery to save the life of the patient, and removing the rotten apple in the barrel to protect the other out. To try to show that while God used actions that involved force, his motive was to save, not to destroy. And motive is what gives character to the act, so therefore the character, the act itself, was not violent. Then in 2011, Jared Wright uh, encountered a man who slugged him in the face. And those of you who follow Spectrum online know the story very well. I have uh, emailed and corresponded with uh, Jared about it uh, because I was finishing my book when this happened. And uh, I, this man cited Phineas. Uh, as, a, as a justification for beating him up which he wanted to do but didn't quite he managed to slay his lips at that moment and so here I was about to write the last chapter in the book which was why God could use these measures in, in ancient times we cannot um, an even bigger problem is why would he use them in, in ancient times but not now we don't describe floods and tornadoes and various things, illnesses to God. <laughs> we don't hear it. <laughs> um, so Bright's story really challenged me. Uh, at one point, I considered the easiest way to deal with Phineas and God was to join a minority group in the church and declare that God never killed. I swept through the chapter maintaining my old position, but I had a major question. And I was, it was an uneasy solution to the problem. Several things bothered me. If Jesus told us to be mature like our Father in heaven was mature because he sent rain and sunshine on the righteous and the unrighteous, how could I justify the violence of God in the Old Testament without giving tacit permission to radical individuals we seek to justify the use of violence now in the name of the Old Testament of God. It was not easy for me to resolve, and of course I realized that they are reading the text very uh, literally. Uh, I don't read the text quite so literally, so even in my old view. So um, maybe it's a problem of hermeneutics, but I still felt uneasy. I felt like I couldn't really uh, excuse God for using violence in the Old Testament and say we can't. And then there was this quote from Ellen White in the Star of Ages, where she says, Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power. 
No, uh, I can highlight this. Um, the presentation of these principles of the means of use, not the enforcement, the presentation. And that statement really bothered me, haunted me. If God never uses swords, what do you do with the Old Testament stories that say that? Then two people very dear to my heart, namely my parents, <laughs> uh, read a book entitled As He Is. And I think that um, some have mentioned this book in here. Uh, this book claims that God has never killed and spent considerable space hypothesizing how events such as flood, flood, and more unforeties in the virus might have taken place. I wanted to reject the book's thesis until I read the following about the fall of Jerusalem in 1870. This is a statement by Ellen White that I've read many times. Always applied strictly to the plagues and to the final destruction of the wicked. But I reread it and realized that it was not merely applicable to them. The Jews had forged their own fetters. They had filled for themselves the cup of vengeance. And the utter destruction that befell them as a nation, they were but reaping the harvest which their own hands had sown. Their sufferings are often represented as punishment visited upon them by the direct decree of God. It is thus that the great deceiver seeks to conceal his own work. By stubborn rejection of divine love and mercy, the Jews had caused the protection of God to be withdrawn from them, and Satan was permitted to rule them according to his will. The horrible cruelties enacted in the destruction of Jerusalem are a demonstration of Satan's vindictive power over those who yield to his control. We cannot know how much we owe to Christ for the peace and protection which we enjoy. It is the restraining power of God that prevents mankind from passing fully under the control of Satan. But when man passes the limits of divine forbearance, that restraint is removed. God does not stand toward the sinner as the executioner of the sentence against transgression, but he leaves the rejectors of his mercy to themselves to leave that which they have sown. Every ray of light rejected, every warning despised or unheeded, every passion indulged, every transgression of the law of God is seed sown which yields an unfailing harvest. The Spirit of God persistently resisted as the last was drawn from the sinner and then there is left no power to control the evil enmity of Satan. The destruction of Jerusalem is a fearful and solemn warning to all who are trifling with the offers of divine grace and resisting the pleadings of divine mercy. I had always applied these words strictly to the two events I mentioned, the plagues and the final destruction of the wicked, but I realized in her language that she did not restrict it to those two things. She applied it across the board to all God's acts of punishment or judgment. Words she uses in connection with the destruction of Jerusalem. In other places, she uses the same words, punishment, judgment, uh, to describe acts of God in the Old Testament, such as the flood. So, there's nothing in this passage to to dictate that it has to apply only to those two events, it seems to be an overarching statement that can apply to any such incident. And this may explain why, when she felt it appropriate, such as the incident of snakes and numbers, she explained that it's not an act of God, but rather he stopped protecting them. So, this boils down to hermeneutical issues. Uh, typically, we have taken passages that speak of God directly destroying the wicked at the end, and by using other passages, show that this destruction is not a direct act of God. Yet we deny the terminology, which works just as well regarding stories where God is said to destroy. I'm going to map this out for you so that you can see how this works. If we could believe that God did not directly harden Pharaoh's heart, and I refer to Ellen White, she says he did not directly harden Pharaoh's heart. And that the fires of hell do not really burn forever and ever, even though the text says they do. Uh, by using other texts, and this is a historic Adventist approach which all Catholics have morally and why do we insist that God actually did send the flood and burn up Sodom and Gomorrah simply because they said he did? Is this a consistent hermeneutic? So, let's try this out. Did God do these things? The Lord will send on you disaster, panic, frustration, and everything you attempt to do. So every time you're frustrated, you fall into panic, 
you have a disaster happen, uh, God did it, right? The Lord will cause pestilence to cling to you until it consumes you from the land. I'm taking this from Deuteronomy 28, the famous chapter that has all the curses. So every time we have a pestilence uh, of any bug, insect, whatever, uh, God's doing it. The Lord will afflict you with consumption of tuberculosis, fever, inflammation, blazing heat, drought, blight, and mildew. God is doing it. The Lord will make you defeated before your enemies. God did that. And, and of course you can ask the question, how did he do it? <clears throat> the Lord will afflict you with the boils of Egypt with ulcer, scurvy, and itch. Really? Well, there's the God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And uh, the text says, when, God, when I put a leprous disease in your house, things you're supposed to do. God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the Lord of Shechem. God sends an evil spirit. And Samson's desire to marry a woman from Timnah is from the Lord. The Lord made him do that because he was seeking a pretext against the Philistines. The Lord brought Naomi back empty and dealt harshly with her. So, He's the cause of her son's death and her husband. Eli's son refused to listen to their father because the Lord wanted to kill him. <laughs> An evil spirit who Lord torment Saul. David states that the Lord told Shimei to curse him. The Lord raises up an adversary, literally a baton against all of them. Elijah charges God with killing the widow of Zarephath's son. The Lord puts the lying spirit into the mouth of the false prophets. He says he will bring a nation from far away against Jerusalem. And, and believe me, many Christians teach that God uses all these forces. These are his tools, his, his weapons of punishment. Now, sometimes the Bible says it two ways. Did God or Satan tempt David to number Israel? 2 Samuel 24.1 says God did. 1 Chronicles 21.1 says Satan. So which one do we go with? Uh, Solomon commands Benaiah to kill Joab and the temple courts because the Lord will bring back on his own head the innocent bloody shed. Yet Solomon does this himself. Because he believes in keeping with the ancient Aries, that the role of the king was to administer justice in the, in the house of God. So did God give commands to Israel to offer their firstborn so they might horrify them? That's in Ezekiel 20, 25, 26 take. Uh, or did, it, did that thought never enter his mind? He never commanded it, according to Jeremiah 7, 34. Did Saul kill himself? Or did the Lord? If you go to 1 Chronicles 10, 4-14, it says that Saul took his own sword and fell on. Lines later down, and at verse 10, it says, Thus the Lord slew Saul. Which one are you going to believe? There are two ways in similar context. God sends a prophet to Jeroboam with a message, but warns him not to stop or anything on the way home. He disobeys and is killed by a lion. The older prophet, who led lied to him, said, The Lord has given him into the lion. We usually attribute this to act to God, but it actually, the text says, The Lord has given him to the lion. Uh, then there's uh, 1 Kings 14, 15, and 16. The Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken by the water. He will root up Israel out of this land that he gave to their ancestors and scatter them uh, beyond the Euphrates. And it lines down. He will give Israel up because of the sins of says it two ways. He will do this, but he will give them up. It seems to be parallel. 
So let's look at this from the standpoint of Ellen White's uh, concept of inspiration. She says, the Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and of expression with that of humanity. God as the writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God is not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's pen, and not his pen. Look at the different writers. So, for a consistent hermeneutic, I have previously suggested the Old Testament speaks in two voices, a major voice that dashes the divine will to the will of the people, and a minor voice that speaks more closely to God's ideal of the will. Rhetoric that declares that God does this or that act is clearly speaking in the major voice, because such a word reflects human perceptions, perceptions that prevailed in the ancient Greece. I'll give you some examples. Uh, angry gods are said to level the land in the same breath that the enemy forces are said to level cities, towns, and temples. Father Enlil, the quote, by means of his angry commands, has overthrown the homeland. It would be through enemy forces. And the arrogant, the agreement violator, he, and as Enlil, does not tolerate their evil in the city. He does not let the wicked and evil doers escape its meshes. Oh my Lord, my wrongdoings are many greater my sins. God in his rage, in the rage of his heart, has confronted me. The goddess has become angry with me and made me ill. Uh, this is a Babylonian psalm. And this is a, a very, probably the most telling uh, text in all of Babylonia about this. Uh, this is, um, I will praise the Lord of wisdom. This is by a sufferer who is praising Marduk because uh, he has answered his prayers and healed him when he thought he was going to die. In fact, they were already preparing his burial. Uh, he says, uh, he, I'm going to just try to highlight, um, talks about his, his fury is unfaithful, his, merc- his mind is merciful, uh, but the force of whose hand the heavens cannot bear, and so on. Uh, the greatness of whose hands help the dead. So he both he both kills and, and makes a lot. Very much like Deuteronomy. But when he slaughters, he causes the fallen to rise. He looks angrily at the lamas and the shades depart. He sets his eye on the personal God, turns back to the one who pushes away. In an instant, his heavenly punishment is terrible. But suddenly, he has pity. He turns them to his mother. He hastens to treat his beloved kindly. Soothing our advantages, uh, line 22. He heals the victims of Namtar. When he speaks, he imposes crimes on one in the day of judgment, death, and sins are absolved. It is he who oppresses, he makes people sick by his incantation, shivers, and chills are expelled. So, again, the theme uh, that runs through Babylonian text is that the same as in the Old Testament God does it, kills, and he also makes alive. Just a question. Is there um, a subschool of thought that places the formation of Deuteronomy into the Babylonian era? Most don't. Most put it at pre exilic, about the time of Josiah. But it's under the shadow of Babylon when it's written, if, if that's the case. Yeah, it, the, the, the problem is that I kill and make a life is probably older. Um, because that is poetic and, and probably is going all the way back traditionally to Moses. Um, so I, I don't know that we can resolve it. It would be nice to be able to resolve it neat and tidy that way. But this is a prevailing belief throughout the nation. Egypt, Syria, uh, Ugaritic, uh, Catholic. It's the belief that God is true. So the hermeneutic I am employing is one Adventist abuse at the beginning of the movie. It does not cancel out texts, but reinterprets those texts in light of three things. Clearer texts explain the difficult text. And this is, you use Ellen White's phraseology, uh, comparing scripture with scripture. Uh, the character of God revealed more fully in the life of Christ, for example. Uh, and simple common sense or logic. If you study the hermeneutic pioneers, this is the hermeneutic they use. What has happened is that since Ellen White died, the rise of fundamentalism has taken place in America. And uh, with that came a very rigid interpretation of the text. 
So the big question is, why should we believe that God did not pardon Pharaoh's heart, that the wicked will not burn forever, that God did not send the lying spirit to fall, that he is not responsible for natural disasters, that he did not send, will not send the final place, which all white makes very clear, and that he will not destroy the wicked at the end, even though the Bible says he did and will, but at the same time it says he did directly send the flood, burn up Sodom, and more and swallow up cake, pour a deep in the fire, consume the devil by you, and strike as a and sleep to 85,000 periods because the Bible stands it. To me, this is, this is the crux. If we're going to be consistent in our hermeneutics, we need to read uh, the entire Bible in light of it. Well, the question, of course, that I raised earlier is how does God destroy it? If we're going to take it the way it reads, uh, that's a fair question to ask. Does he ever need to destroy, or are there forces available at any time to do their destructive work of God? And, that's and of course, uh, Alan White does make a statement um, to the effect that when God, and we read one in Great Conference, that when God lets go his hand and, and lets people uh, have the full result of their choices, uh, Satan is up there active, wanting to claim them as his own. And besides Satan, aren't there plenty of other dangerous things around us to destroy God and protect us? Most Adventists are convinced that God is not directly responsible for the natural disasters in our world. And this is true. If you study evangelism, uh, they try to attract members by arguing that either Satan or we humans are responsible. Uh, why would God not be directly responsible for flooding like Katrina, but responsible for the first flood? as God changed in the 20th and 21st century when he deals with human beings from how he dealt with them more justly. Ellen White speaks of God's judgment that work in the land and the sea, the judgments of God are in the land, he is sending upon them, sending them upon men by land and by sea. Yet she also says that was shown that the judgments of God would come directly out from the Lord upon I'm sorry, would not come directly out from the Lord upon them, but in this way. They place themselves beyond his protection. He warns, corrects, reproves, and points out the only path to safety. Then if those who have been the object of special care will follow their own course, independent of the Spirit of God after repeated warnings, if they choose their own way, then he does not commission anything to prevent things besides the task. It is Satan's power that is at work at sea and on land, bringing calamity and distress, sweeping all multitudes to make sure of his prey. Now, in previous presentations, I've argued that the minor voice of God's will preferably comes, prefer, preferred, uh, God's preferred will, comes in the first in a narrative sequence, or first canonically speaking. So, what is the first instance of God telling people in the Old Testament, and how is it stated? Before we move to this, I would like to note that when Cain murders his brother Abel, God does not call for his death but actually protects his life. And what does it say for his initial regard for human life? So here it comes to the flood. My spirit shall not abide in mortals forever, for they are flesh. So the Lord said, I will blot out from the earth human beings whom I have created. The word blot out is a fairly loose term. It can bear interpretation. And then this one, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Now I'm going to destroy them along with all the earth. Uh, and I put sick after that because this is an interpretation of the Hebrew. Let's look at the Hebrew as it really means. An end of all flesh has come before me. That's very open and very. Uh, it's passive. It, it, an end of all flesh has come before me. I'm, I'm looking at the earth and seeing an end. And behold me ruining, destroying them with the earth. Um, it's not active kind of thing. And if you take the first line to help you read the second, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is the one destroying the earth. The major voice in these texts is fairly strong, but by removing the translator's bias and letting the Hebrew wording remain, the minor voice can be heard. The violence of humankind is destroying the earth, and those who insist on violence will be destroyed. No wonder God grieves that he regrets ever creating humankind only to have them 
destroyed us. After the flood, God gives the first statement regarding taking human life in Genesis 9, 5, and 6. For you, for your own lifeblood, I will surely require a reckoning from every animal I will require, and from human beings, each one for the blood of another, I will require a reckoning from human life. Whoever sheds the blood of a human by a human, shall that person's blood be shed, for in his own image God made human kind. And note that the word require means to investigate, seek out, care for something or someone. So it's, it's require is an interpretation of that word. Canonically, this text receives the sixth commandment that forbids murder. Scholars are quick to point out that the word kill in Exodus 20.13 refers to murder, since it is used only of humans, not of animals. They suggest that it does not forbid killing in war, capital punishment, or killing in self-defense, which makes us raise the question to you that in those settings, is, are human beings just animals? In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, however, God is against all bloodshed. If one understands that God is said to do what he allows in the Old Testament, then the text really states that he will moderate the case of any person killed by another, and the killer will be killed by yet another natural effect. He's, he's predicting what will happen, not saying it's what will happen. And that, you have to look at that word required again uh, and, and ask if it really mean that. So if human bloodshed is wrong for humans, is it not wrong for God? Now we come to Sodom and Gomorrah. This story is an interesting example of minor and major voices in a single narrative. The narrative begins with God telling Abraham about conditions in Sodom. Then the Lord said, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. If not, I will know. And if not, I will destroy it. If not, I will know. So far, God says nothing about destroying Sodom. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous of the wicked? Abraham reads it differently. Uh, Far be it from you to do such things, slay the righteous of the wicked, so that the righteous fare of the wicked. In keeping with ancient Eastern views, Abraham assumes that God is planning to destroy the people of Sodom. And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Will you destroy the whole city for lack of fire? Of fire? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty fires there. God only states, I will not destroy it after Abraham uses it in application. In the next chapter, angels declare, For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry of the people against us people and has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The initial statements by God are the reckoning statements of investigation. These come first in the Sodom narrative and thus form the minor voice of God's preferred will. After Abraham assumes God's plan to destroy Sodom, the major voice that follows that assumption states that the Lord has sent the angels to destroy Sodom. And how did they destroy the city? Is it possible to destroy it by simply leaving Lot and his family away from it so that God wants to kill The two final canonical stories of God's killing someone occurred in the book of Acts. Notice I, I bookended Genesis because Genesis seems to have the minor voice of God more prominently than any other Old Testament book. The two final canonical stories of God killing someone occur in the book of Acts. When confronted with his lying to the Holy Spirit, Ananias drops dead in front of the believers. When Sapphira comes in, Peter confronts her and predicts her demise upon which she dies. But nothing is said in the entire story about God doing the killing. This is now New Testament. In Acts 12, Herod accepts worship from the people, and an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by words and died. Did the angel have to strike him or merely leave him? So, given the evidence above and the hermeneutics of Seventh Avenue's abuse in their inception, I have come to believe that God has never taken life directly that has killed anyone. The way the stories are worded reflects human rhetoric, and all that is human is imperfect, and that's almost a direct quote from the whole life. 
of rhetoric that imperfectly attributes directly to God what he allows or brings about their withdrawing from protection. Or to put it another way, when people cut themselves off from that protection, God can no longer effectually restrain the consequences. Let's look at application. Understanding the difficulties of st- difficult stories of God's discipline in the Old Testament, as I now do, has led to a significant change in my life. And you probably laugh at this because you don't see me as this way. But I have a hidden side to me. <laughs> in my past, I have used methods on students and people in general and pets, most particularly pets, <laughs> that were occasionally insistent, if not forceful. I once terrified my cat. This cat is long dead. <laughs> not because I terrified <laughs> I once terrified my cat so that she wouldn't claw my furniture. She gave it a wide berth for weeks. In fact, I think she gave it a wide berth for months. I terrified her that badly. I justified my actions because of believing God used such measures in the old When the screen came on first, ask the question, does God kill? You may not want to know my answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. My answer is yes. And there is one thing that makes me content with this, and probably this is the only reason I would allow this, is he also has the ability to give life. And if he can give it, he can take it any time he wishes, and he can give it back any time he wishes. And another question I might ask is, is there anything in the Bible that tells us, or some other reason indicates, that God must follow the Ten Commandments? Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments. I'll start with the last question first. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love is who God is. God is love. So the Ten Commandments are God. Uh, so the first question, we tend to think that because God can, He will. This is a, a huge ethical question. We can keep people alive on artificial life support indefinitely. In our brain dead. That means we should. Or we will. God's powers are under the control of his character. He doesn't do things just because he has the power to do that. He does what he does consistently with his character. It seems to me that he's doing what he does to save as many people from this earth as possible. Oh, I agree. I agree. And, and I, would, I would grant you that when God lets people go, that's, a, that's an act. That's an action of God when he lets them go. He's, if he can keep them alive against their will. I guess it bothers me when they say that God really doesn't do it. He just lets the devil do it. Well, to me, he has power over the devil, and if he lets him do it, it's the same as if he's done it. I can think of situations in our human situation where somebody is mad at someone and is about to kill them, and you have the ability to grab their gun and stop it, but you don't. Then you're just as guilty as he is by not preventing that. And unless that person wants to continue the choices that they make that will destroy them. See, what, what is missing in this equation is that sin doesn't kill. Sin does kill. And if a person is deliberately choosing sin against God, rejecting his love and his mercy, and God lets them go, he's not doing the killing. They have chosen to die. Yeah, I'm, again, I'm fixated on words because that's kind of what I do for a living. And it, seemed, it, would, it would be easier for me to say, because I kept seeing that it's sort of like a rich guy who hired the hitman. The way, you know, God removes himself and allows things. But, and 
just stated slightly differently makes me more comfortable, which is, again, in that it says when people remove themselves, then God withdraws. I think we have to I make that point. say when people remove themselves, God allows them to remove themselves exactly. rather than he then actively withdraws. It's that they've gone so far. I think, I think what, what happens is we picture every human being on planet covered by guardian angels, right? And when those guardian angels leave, anything can happen. And, and I think that language of God removing his, his protection becomes that job. Yeah, and I don't like that. I, I like to just leave it. But she says it both ways, and, and I think whatever way helps uh, the best. Yes, sure. Well, this is, thanks for laying out the problem. I still don't see any solutions here. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but a real simple case, I mean, there are lots of bigger issues, but a real simple case that you just mentioned, and that is Ananias and Sapphira. I mean, it, it, it's possible that Ananias just happened to have a heart attack right there. But it also requires that Sapphira, when she comes in and sees that, was scared absolutely to death, literally. And she dies right there. Oh, actually, actually, the text is clear that she didn't know that her husband had already been taken out. She didn't know that he had died. And that also just happened. You know, it, we're really pushing. Well, it, what it means is that we are alive on artificial life support all the time. Or we would be dead. That's, that's what it means. I don't know if that makes any sense in the physical world. I mean, you know, you can say that as a face table, but it makes absolutely no sense to me. I'm sorry. Well, it, it does to me because I believe that God is ultimately the source of our life. He, it, we're not a theist where God just lets it run on its own until it winds down. So I, I believe God is directly in, involved in keeping him work that into the big problems like the Holocaust. Uh, well, I don't believe God did the Holocaust. But why did he keep Hitler breathing if it were with an artificial life story? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think you need to apologize for Hitler. The... <laughs> Even if, if much of what you say resonates and people kind of, by separating themselves with God, bring on their own death, it doesn't answer the question of, like, why would, it was just natural when he removed himself from God that the earth opened up and swallowed him. You mean before days in the fire? Thinking of bacon, the wedge of gold. He was stoned to death. Okay, but. Okay, sorry. But they, the, where I was getting the wrong reference is it's not just the people that were guilty, but innocent children and, and relatives. And, and how does that happen? Well, as a natural we had the, the whole idea of people killing people and and whole families going together. We have to read that I think, as the as the major voice. Because you're dealing with corporate mentality in, in, in Israel. We don't have that kind of thing happening today. We don't have a corporate mentality. But in, in ancient times, if, especially in tribal communities, if a, a single person in a family sinned, that whole family was cultivated. Men, women, children, didn't matter. That, that's their thinking. God and God is, is working with them. I think the illustration that's been used is uh, you are against violence, but your son has decided to take up arms and, and go out and target, shoot, and hunt, and, and he's not afraid to go to war and, and engage in violence. Do you just say, I'm going to take your weapons away from you and I'm going to enforce you not to do that? Or are you going to go out there with him and target practice, show him the deadly force that he's dealing with and how to deal with it? And I, I think that is what God has had to do in the Old Testament. But here, consistently through this whole thing, God is fighting violence with even greater violence. It, it, well, violence, okay, so violence, violence. I'm going to show you what it's really like to have a temper tantrum. <laughs> I don't know, it just doesn't work for me. 
Well, that's why I see that violence leads to violence. I mean, to me, violence has an effect on nature. It has an effect on our world. And when God lets those forces take over, we have mayhem and violence. Yeah. Yeah. I keep thinking of the title of the book that bad things happen to good people. Um, I have known of wonderful people who were beautifully dedicated and something terrible happened to them. Now, of course, maybe they weren't as good as they sing. <laughs> And I think that's what makes this this whole thing a very important topic to talk about because it would be very easy to say, well, everybody that dies abnormally uh, early in life through disaster or through whatever, everyone who does that is a victim of God. So they're bad. We know that's not true. We know that there's the book of Job that counters that whole theology and actually trashes it as folly at the end of the book. And, and so, and, and so, well, if the book contends God doesn't do it, the book contends Hasatan did it, and the book contends Leviathan is is the monster in the sea that God has to deal with, and he's a monster. He's the king over all the sons of pride. Is how that the divine speech is down. And so. You have to read Job against the background of the ancient Near East where everybody believes that God's destroyed and recognize that it is countering that theology. It's saying that theology is bankrupt. It's called the retributive theory of justice. Uh, and the book of Job counters that theory. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of persuaded along this line except that um, I... Uh, I have a hard time if um, if God is saving us from Satan because it seems like God and Satan are in cahoots. When, when we say it that way, um, it it's easier for me when God is saving us from evil, um, and it appears when we say it that way that uh, Satan is saving us from evil either. Otherwise, he would, it seems like, at least in some cases, um, so that um, he could be a savior. Um, it appears that he can't. Can you unpack that a little bit more? Well, I'm just saying, if Satan is as smart as everyone says he is, that uh, uh, he could uh, make it appear that. Uh, at least at times that uh, you can do whatever you want God can leave and you can still be okay yeah I thought of that and I and that's why some, I think that what I'm doing with this is looking at windows on a bigger problem uh, these are not this is not intended to be a complete solution to the whole situation it's a window on it uh, it gives us a partial information. To me, the piece of this that gets hard to deal with is when you start thinking about God intervening in individual situations and he's making individual decisions and then drawing a connection here or not. Looking at it more holistically is easier for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if we look at something like Katrina in mm-hmm. modern day, after the fact that all kinds of people that came up with reasons why mm-hmm. that particular city might have been targeted from a conservative evangelical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to wonder how much of that is the major voice that you have in that happening or something like that or something like that. Maybe it's just something that happened after the fact that you were pointing at the thing. And I guess problematic is like God going ahead of time and 
Yeah. Uh, to me, that's the most problematic part of the story. In a sense, is that there was this intervention with one family. Um, it was their intervention with one family and Katrina to save them, and everyone else was somehow not good. Although there's a lot of stories that came out of Katrina. And, and to me, the piece is why did he choose to save some good people, but there's many other good people, as Alice points out, that died prematurely. That, 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 and that's a, to me, that's a bigger, bigger issue yeah, that, that would take, I, I take a whole quarter to try to discuss that issue. <laughs> to me, it's a lot easier to see. I don't give them the answer. I, I give them windows. To me, it's a lot easier to see it as that we live in a messed up world and there's things that happen and it's a lot easier after the fact to look at coincidences and try to describe something to it to ascribe divine hand being at work. Maybe maybe it was a twist. Maybe maybe there was you know you know, you know a lot of, a lot of my students take that route and then I tell them a personal story which defies any any slight glimmer of a chance that wasn't a miracle, you know. Mm-hmm. And you hear a story that told by people who have experienced them that do suggest that God does do miracles, and that just it just complicates the issue. It does. If there were no miracles, it's and, and that, that's what my students that's where my students have the most yeah. trouble is with God doing miracles. Yeah. It's not with all things bad things that happen. Right. It's yeah. with with God's intervention. If, if He does choose to intervene, why on earth would yeah. He intervene with You know, if ever there was a time and place to make some little intervention that could have made a huge difference, a little heart attack here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. and so it's, it's hard to. The only thing, the only thing I would want to say about Hitler, and this is only a window again, this is not the whole solution. But with Hitler, there was more than just Hitler involved. This is the problem was bigger than Hitler. Hitler was, yes, he he was a seemed to be a demonic person who did a lot of demonic things, but he had a host of people surrounding him and helping him and do it and closing their eyes to it and merely removing Hitler would not solve the problem for them. Picking up on the first part of that, the, or maybe thought of more, I don't know. Uh, rather than ascribing them to God or to the devil, uh, it seems like we have naturalistic explanations for them. That yeah, it, it becomes things that we have done, the planet is the way it is, it's in, in what's happened naturally and volcanoes happen naturally uh, the, the only I guess this is an observation I don't necessarily see it as a problem but a lot of people would is if we are so quick to ascribe acts of God to things that we don't have a, an actual explanation for, why why are we so quick to reject God acting in negative ways, but so quick to say that well, He did all the positive ones. You know, if you have a bountiful harvest, is it a blessing of God, or was it just natural, naturally what happened? Um, and if we get more and more to the point where God becomes whatever we don't have an explanation for, and as we are able to explain more and more, God gets smaller and smaller, and yeah. <laughs> That's if we put them purely in a power based model and we're dealing merely with like what power he has. But if he is a good God and, and a creation story which he models the, the, the minor voice of God, if he is a good God, he always acts good. But is every good act only explainable by God doing No, I don't think so. I, I think. I, I do believe that God pours, sends rain on the just and on the unjust alike, and sunshine on the just and the unjust alike. I believe he, He's universal, but I believe that God that things like my crops produced really well this year might have to do with fertilizer I put on them. They might have to do with um, maybe the, the land itself. You know. Things like that. I don't think they're just a few years ago. Oh, yes. Yeah. I don't know where this 
citation would be from the things like I remember reading that Ellen White was attributing the 1906 earthquake to God's intervention and punishment. She, she talked about angels tipping over while, um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, which, you know, when you have a whole section of earthquake, uh, false seems a little bit, you know. Yeah, I, 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 again, it's how literally you're going to read it because yeah. it says it. Does that mean? Yeah. And the other thing, this was, came up in a sermon that Mark was doing not too long ago in which he was studying Hosea. Um, and in Hosea, the Lord tells Hosea to call his child Jezreel. Because I will soon punish the house of Judah for the massacre of Jezreel, I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. And in that day I will break its will to in the valley of Jezreel. And 2 Kings 9 says that Elisha sent one of the prophets to Jehu. The Lord said, I anoint you to be king over Israel, you are to destroy the house of Ahab, your master, and I will avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, the blood of all the Lord's servants. So here you have what appears to be a direct command from God for Jehu. And then he gets punished for it. Well, to me, that is a great example of of one of the the rules I have not yet applied to text here of the major and minor voice. The major voice is corrected by the minor voice. And so where you find a corrected like Jesus, you know, remember how how Elijah called fire down from heaven to burn up the, the men who came to pick him up? Jesus later in, in the uh, New Testament calls for the disciples that want to have fire come down on Samaria for rejecting him. Jesus says, you know not what spirit you are of. Uh, to me, that's a corrective by, by the minor voice. I, I want to I step back from this. I, you know, that's a good question. Did God honor his prophet against his will? I don't know. Uh, the thing, the thing that I would like to ask is that we stop assuming for literature a one-to-one correspondence of, of word and meaning. Literature is not algebra. There's no one reading of the text. And we should have a closing hymn from the trust in the Lord. <laughs> uh, but, but, but seriously, to me, we fall into all kinds of problems reading the Bible when we assume for the text something it is not intended to do. And that is to give us an exact, precise, scientific explanation. That's what I call an incantation. Adieu. Well, let me first say that, uh, you know, in other parts of the world today, what we, we don't uh, believe in God's actions, or God's actions, in fact, is that matter as well. We have not gone beyond the concepts of the Haitians and, and the Bible writers on this issue. Um, God is still on the hook as, as a major actor uh, in, in all these things and, and accepted actually as a, as a prerogative that, that God has. Um, and so when people behave the way they do, it's not a contribution either. They are just, just worse and I'm just worse and all that. My question though is um, on the issue of rhetoric. And the Bible writers, as you described it, used expressions, and Adam and White seems to affirm that it was not a dictation by God, but you know. So, as they did have their record, we have ours too. And so, you know, you, you get into in Hudra, and on what basis do we determine that? 
And uh, it's because we have gone beyond a certain point in Western society for that. It's because some of us have examined the life of Christ as definitive for all scripture. And Jesus never killed anyone. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the form. Some of us take those, those overarching statements that are very radical and very far-reaching and say, death has to make sense with you. And that's what led to this whole discussion. Um, in, in this discussion, I'm surprised that what we heard from the ideas from Pastor Mark were only mentioned one. And uh, they seem to me, uh, to a certain degree, there may be solutions somewhere there. Uh, you know, in Old Testament, they, the whole idea of having Satan was very difficult to swallow. Uh, at the same time, you, you reminded Elisha, and then Elisha, then there was Elisha's story when there were children. And they were watching him, and then there was a, a, a bear, mother, who kills all the children, or something like that. And it's very difficult to, again, kind of. I mean, I, I don't see the explanation here. In other words, uh, my question is how. how what, what would, would you comment on this idea that the New Testament is really not ready to vote for Satan in the year? The New Testament, the, people are developmental. They're not computers that we can program. And in order to talk to people, we have to meet them where they are and speak the language that they understand. And God has had to do that. Elijah, Elisha took it upon himself to curse those children. Uh, cursing was never God's original plan. I've studied that out of the Bible in, in the minor voice. would indicate that God, God didn't curse Adam and Eve, contrary to what my students tell me over the years. Uh, he cursed the ground and the serpent, but not the man and the woman. And that's the precedent that God doesn't prefer cursing. But Elisha curses them. And I see it as consequential. So she bears you there. God didn't protect them from them. You know, there's two ways to deal with, with the Bible. One is to say it's just a human book. And these are human perceptions of God. And the story. And we don't have a problem with we don't have an issue. There's no theological debate. It's where we deal with this as normative, uh, sacred text that it becomes a problem. And, and I, I choose to deal with the Bible as sacred text, believing that God inspired people just for the sake of meeting them where they were. And that's why he didn't inspire their words. He let them state it the way they saw it. Now, we're not absorbing God from any form of violence or, or action that, that arises because we have to come in the end, the end, right? Where a lot of, a lot of things are going to change or better or for worse. Talking about the end of the world, for example, as we do And see, I, I, that's, that's again my, my strong point has always been that God does not destroy the wicked at the end. So, how does it end? It ends by Him giving them consequences of their choice. That is, allowing them, you have what you've chosen, and it all acts out. And it acts out in the same way that Jesus died. What it destroys them, I believe, is emotional agony. That's the lake of fire. Um, and I, I make that, I'll admit, I, the person that led me to that was Ellen White, and the statement she made in the Science of the Times April, 19, April 18, 1898. Uh, April 14, 1898. 
where she she likens the lake of fire, or she likens the fire that is not quenchable to emotional agony, and she parallels it to Jesus' death. I think when we look at the cross and we see how Jesus died, we see how the wicked will die. And Jesus stated very clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane, "My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. I'm so I'm so in, full of emotional agony. I'm dying." And I, I don't think we recognize that when Paul says that they store up in themselves wrath for the day of, of wrath, and translators usually translate it among themselves, or no, for themselves, but the Greek can actually read in themselves, that we store up our own emotional, you know how we repress things and we, we storage things. I don't think we realize what potential we have for self-destruction. Yeah, I know, our time is up. Father, we ask that as we go from here, that our discussion will continue, that we will ask hard questions, and that we will seek comprehensible and uh, answers that will reveal you as you really are. In Jesus' name. Thank you.